This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. In this episode, we speak with our guest, Michelle Merwin, about power in the classroom and how her study of existentialist Rollo May's teachings on power has transformed her teaching. We have with us today Michelle Merwin, professor of psychology at the University of Tennessee at Martin, to discuss an article she published about 10 years ago. Though it's not a recent piece, it's still particularly relevant for teaching generally, and given our current struggle against COVID-19, specifically relevant for teaching in this moment. The article is entitled Lessons from an Existentialist, What Rollo May Taught Me About Power in the Classroom. As the title suggests, it is a personal exploration into power's various manifestations in the classroom and the struggles that potentially ensue. Michelle suggests that a simple inquiry into power in the classroom can enhance consciousness, freedom, destiny, and personal responsibility. She also discusses a number of ways in which thinking about power in her own classroom has at times shifted her teaching style and pedagogy. We've invited Michelle here to continue this conversation. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you, good to be here. And we also have um, Brady and Josh with us as always. Uh, hello. Uh, Michelle, I wonder if you could start by just talking about the different kinds of power that you discuss in uh, this piece and giving us a quick definition of each. Okay, so these uh, definitions of power uh, come from Rollo May's book, Power and Innocence, and he delineates uh, several different levels of power. So the first one is exploitative power, which is um, basically invoking coercion and force. The second is manipulative power, and that's power over another, uh, which means, which he uh, posited could lead to passivity in people. The next one is competitive power. That's power against another. And when one wins, basically it's because the other loses. So um, that's competitive power. Nutrient power is power for another. Um, and so it's used on the behalf of another. And then integrative power is power with another. So um, you were talking in the article about manipulative power uh, and the way uh, that's played out in your classroom in some ways. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. And uh, you mentioned also how you've, you've learned to loosen your grip and uh, try to control your students less in that section. Could you talk more uh, about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm not sure how that actually began in my life, um, in my teaching life, but uh, I've often wondered, you know, how, uh, how do we motivate people? And more specifically, in this case, how do we motivate people to do what we want them to do, right? And so um, I'll give you just a quick example. Uh, at one point, I had my inherited a, for a history of psychology class. And with that was a 25-page research paper that the students were doing. And they were to write this long, lengthy paper about a theorist or a psychologist. And I struggled with this, you know, they weren't uh, doing it the right way at multiple levels. They weren't taking it seriously, they weren't referencing correctly, they weren't reading the articles, et cetera. And as this progressed over time, my grip on them got tighter and tighter and tighter. It was like, you know, I gave them all semester to work on it. And uh, then I realized that no matter how much time they had, they would procrastinate it and turn it in, you know, the last minute. And 
And um, so then I started having them turn it in midterm because I'd give myself some time to grade it, et cetera, et cetera. So I felt in that sense that my grip was tightening. Um, and I was really trying to like squeeze it out of them at that point. And then one day I just walked away from that. Like, this is not my project. I was writing an abstract for a poster. And I was, as I was writing it, I'm like, man, this is hard to write this in, you know, a hundred words or so. And I realized that it's actually harder to write shorter uh, pieces of work than it is to write lengthier pieces of work. And so I basically turned that research project upside down and had uh, the class develop a newspaper. So each person had a theorist and they would make a, a little um, biographical sketch about that person. They would include these uh, a little synopsis about who was president of APA that year, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned it into more of a fun project that was really kind of um, an expression of my creativity in the classroom. And so uh, that was kind of how I see it as, you know, loosening my grip. I think that I had choked off my potentiality and also their potentiality in trying to control them and to get them to do what I wanted them to do. And I lost really the entire point of the experience, which is the joy in teaching history of psychology, because I loved that topic. I loved teaching it at the time. I'm, I'm curious, Michelle, you mentioned that you inherited the class. So, so was this paper originally that you were trying to kind of force them into doing a certain way? Was this somebody else's assignment that you had picked up? Yeah, that's right. The person that had taught it to before, um, and, I, and I was kind of uh, more of a junior professor. I really hadn't established my identity as a teacher. And so I just kept doing what, what uh, the person before me had done. Because it sounds like you're saying that part of loosening your grip was recognizing where your own personal buy-in was with the assignment. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But it was that process of, of still trying to manipulate and to control the students to get this product that I wanted from them. Right. And, well, you know, uh, I, yeah. Go ahead. I was, I, I was just going to say, I wonder how much of what was problematic in that interaction was that it was the wrong assignment for you and for the class and how much of it was, was, you know, the wrong approach, like tr trying to force something that didn't feel right. You know, like, oh, okay. Totally. Uh, this is where I wound up is um, in my discovery of examining power. And that is that it's not what you're doing. It's not the content of what you're doing. It is the way you are being. And that's existentialism in a nutshell, right? And so I basically um, examine myself in terms of my experience of the student and the classroom and the topic or whatever it might be in my stance in the classroom. So it's not about um, it's not about how, even it's not about what so much as it is about my sense of me being in the classroom. And I felt that my outlet for creativity has always been through my teaching. That's, that's one of the joys of teaching for me is my create, it's an outlet for my creativity. And I choke that off when I get into these power struggles over trying to manipulate people, um, 
And that's kind of, that's basically how I, I conceptualize it to be as I want them to be. And so I can back away from that and say, okay, let's look at what's happening here in terms of my being a teacher in this moment. And I think about that uh, through my values, like what do I want to be? Well, I want to be um, alive in the classroom, empathic and compassionate and curious and all of those things. And when you get into this manipulation of power and the power struggle, you lose all of those qualities. Seems like um, a lot of what you discuss in this paper might come alive for teachers as we experience resistance in the classroom. Um, that, that those moments of resistance are kind of a question of how are we going to respond. It sounds like for you, um, recognizing your sense of creativity is maybe one indicator of how well you're handling that resistance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I would say I had um, a lot of this is it really comes from, you know, trying to connect empathically and compassionately with students. Um, not that you're, you know, really a pushover, but um, there was one class that I taught, it was a meditation class. And this class, like no matter what I did, they, they were quiet, the whole class, you know, they were introverted, and they wouldn't talk to me. Um, and I'm like, well, do I need to have them turn in work that summarizes this or have them ask a couple questions. Again, I got into that manipulation mode of what do I need to do to get them to give me what I want. And I just moved into this attitude of acceptance, like, okay, classes have different personalities. This is their personality. I accept who they are and kind of work with it. So it is, um, it's really trying to explore my values explore who I am as a teacher. And, and Bravo may use the term intentionality, which is the structure that gives meaning to our experience. So it's not, it's bigger than intention, but it's what's my, what's the big picture here. And for me, creativity is one of those things among other things. You know, I found Michelle that, that sometimes I'm at my best as a teacher when I get into that. Uh, mode of acceptance with my students but there's still for me so much richness and depth that can come in the classroom when the students come having prepared themselves to learn or to have whatever conversation that I'm that I'm hoping that we can have uh, primarily by doing what I've assigned them to read and that's one of my biggest struggles as far as manipulative power is concerned. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think about that, because for me, I, I guess it's hard for me to imagine um, how to balance maybe uh, acceptance of say the personality of the class, but also really wanting to do something to help motivate them to prepare themselves to learn. And does that, come through, uh, you know, an attitude, do you think? I mean, I'm coming, I'm asking, because that's, that's what I would suggest it might. Yeah, and, and you've said that in conversations that we've had before. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, exactly. I'd even just add, um, when I'm in situations like students are, where there's maybe something that I even value and that's expected of me, 
a lot of times if I don't have some kind of requirement attached to it, I'm still not going to do it, you know? And so it's there. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like there's something that we owe our students to help them to be able to do the challenging thing. Um, I don't know if part of your question, Joe, is whether that has to be manipulative or if, if you're expecting that we could have like purely intrinsic good behavior. That's well, yeah, that's, I think that um, that's a, a good way to frame it. And as I'm thinking about what you ask or, or what you said there, Brady, I'm thinking that, um, that in some respects, when we lay out a syllabus, for example, with certain assignments, then, then those assignments could be ways of, of trying to manipulate our students, or they could be ways of, of pointing out to our students what we value and what we hope that they would value. Maybe that's one way to look at it, but, but I, I don't know how to distinguish necessarily between those two when it comes to, say, mo trying to help them see the value in reading, for example. I don't know if I'm being clear. Well, the idea is that all of these levels of power are at play. And I, I'm suggesting that what I, my framework is not that it's laissez-faire, right? That um, in this case, if I'm the uh, dance instructor, I know what's best in, as far as learning, generally speaking. Like I, I've spent 20 years of my life developing my teaching technique. And so I do know a thing. I always joke that I'm a trained professional, <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I know... I know what is best for their learning and pre-reading is best for their memory. I understand that cognitively. So it's not, it's not um, hands off or laissez-faire, not having any standards, but it's being aware of when you apply manipulative power and being conscious of it and to understand your own motivations behind it and how it may be experienced on the other end of, you know, from the student's perspective but also to kind of broaden and think about there being other ways to do it and additional uh, methods of establishing power in the classroom. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, at least one of the things I feel like I'm learning from this conversation is that I think when we have something we want to accomplish in the classroom, the, the lever we usually push on is the manipulative power lever, right? It's like, how can I get my students to, you know, write this paper or to read, do the reading before they come to class or whatever. And I think we typically don't think how could, how could my being a different sort of person in the classroom or a different sort of teacher in the classroom, how might that help to, to create the sort of outcomes I'm looking for? So I think, it, I think it's really useful to think um, about these other ways, other kinds of power for creating change that aren't so it shouldn't be the knee jerk to always go to the manipulative power. There are other ways of creating change that, that create cooperation, collaboration. That's right. And I mean, I even, I even just say it in my class and put it in my syllabus that we're a community of learners. That's how I conceptualize the classroom. And so we're, we want to foster cooperation between me and them and among the students. And, you know, what is our end game? And, um, if you look at it kind of in a broader sense, there's nothing wrong with using manipulative power because, you know, 
I mean, if I'm in a contest where there's a t-shirt as a prize, I'm going to work like crazy to get that prize. Everybody loves a carrot, you know? Um, and so there's nothing wrong with using that as long as you're aware of it. But I'd rather be an inspiring teacher. You know, I'd rather be, I'd rather have them see my passion for the subject matter and maybe catch fire from that. And then they're spurred more to learn about the topic matter. But I've always kind of joked that, you know, a third of the classroom loves me, a third of the classroom hates me, and a third could care less about me. And so you're only going to inspire those students who are ready to be inspired by you. And no matter amount of manipulative power is going to change that. And it, it may actually make it worse. So, yeah, I think it starts to get you to think about what do you want for yourself as a teacher? What's your identity? What needs to come of that? and the values that underlie that and also how can you use power so it's it's beneficial for both parties and not the easy go-to carrot and the stick manipulative power so do you have some examples of well so I, what you were just describing sounds to me a bit like what what you called integrated power in the, in the paper where you're kind of doing things together do you have examples um from your teaching where you've been able to successfully use integrative power in the classroom? Well, I think, um, I mean, it's, I think it's more of an attitude. And I, like, I, like I mentioned in the article, it doesn't change them, it changes you. It changes the teacher. And so it's like a, kind of a, a really an experience of freedom. So you can unhinge from those and, you know, points and percentages and all that judgment. And just, um, you, I still have requirements for my class, but um, I guess probably the most recent example was I, I started teaching senior seminar. And when I was conceptualizing the class, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, again, had inherited some things that are always done with that class. And I was uh, reading the American, the American psychologist, the, uh, or the monitor rather, and I saw this um, little article about the court cases that APA had filed as amicus briefs towards for the court system. And I was reading in one of the articles on um, uh, whether uh, adolescents uh, should be um, executed, basically capital punishment. And so I just thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I started to read about it, you know, and look into it a little bit more. And as I delved, I'm like, wow, oh, this is fascinating. So then I discovered that maybe I should use this for senior seminar. It can be a comprehensive activity. They can integrate what they've known across the course of their, you know, their time here at UTM. And um, they're doing research, they're doing writing. And I basically kind of captured that project out of my own curiosity, out of my own love of learning, out of my own application of psychology, and it evolves into a project now that we can work on together. So each student might take a case, but they get the connection and a feeling from me that I'm with them in this exploration of this topic. And so um, it's power you know, with them. And probably that's, that's the most recent example I've had of integrative power because it was, um, again, an expression of my creativity, but also um, they see my love of psychology, my love and interest in these kinds of topics. And I think that's, that's the contagion. So I don't know if that helps. 
I have an, another quick example. Um, there was a student in one of my meditation class and I really struggled with um, the, um, with her and understanding her. And um, one day I just, you know, sat back and I thought about what the struggle was about. And obviously the struggle, struggle is power or conflict, right? Something's going on there. And so I kind of sat back and reflected one day about my own state of empathy with her. And I started to think about, you know, times in my life where I might have felt unmotivated or times in my life when I felt um, that I buckled under the strain or times in my life when I wanted to feel special. And I connected empathically with those feelings, even though they're, you know, smaller than what she's experiencing. And I felt like I worked to understand her a little bit better and could teach her, you know, a little bit better because I had developed that empathy. Whereas before, if it comes down to percentages and points and grades and such, I think you just kind of lose that. It's just reminding me of that human to human connection. And we, none of us ever fulfills our potentialities. That's, that's part of our human experience. I, I wonder if we could turn the conversation just a little bit um, in a different direction, especially given the example um, that you just talked about with the student. Um, I'm interested primarily kind of just with what you were, you were talking about at the beginning of the article with powerlessness. And this is probably a conversation you and I have, have been trying to continue to have, and I'd love to have it with Brady and Josh here. Um, but um, I think you and I have, have really observed in the classroom, and I think uh, this particular moment of time, we, we observe it sort of exaggerated in our students. But this, this feeling of powerlessness that, um, that the students are, are experiencing is uh, kind of exaggerated, I guess. And I, I'm wondering a little bit, as you're talking about integrative power, um, and thinking about that in the context of powerlessness, whether you think integrative power um, is a good way to embolden the students or what you might say about um, how we address the students' power, powerlessness in the classroom. Well, I think, um, you know, from what I've learned from Rollo May, kind of big picture is that um, uh, we, have, we have freedom to act and sometimes we don't see it. And so I am, I, at every opportunity I get, I try to insert some kind of uh, insight into that about how we can act, how we need to make constructive, um, constructive uh, action in our moments of freedom, how we need to create freedom. And um, that powerlessness, you know, is a, a horrible feeling. I think most students can understand that. And it can leave them feeling helpless and also ultimately lead to violence at a societal level. But um, how do you see powerlessness, I guess, would be my question in your, in your students. Yeah. It was a really greatly worded question. I, I'm thinking primarily just about the way that students are handling uh, the movement to online learning. 
and the the anxiety that they seem to be um, feeling maybe about the situation and the way that tends to manifest in some of my own students is that they just can't seem to get things done and they're not quite sure what to do and and again i i don't know if i really want to ask the question that i was trying to ask um, because what's challenging i think about right now is the fact that this this human to human contact that you were talking about earlier is made so much more difficult with the distance we have between us now and and i so i don't i mean i don't know i guess i guess i'm sort of looking for answers on how to to have that human to human contact how to to generate some sort of integrative power with my students right now um, to at least help them feel connected with, with me, if not with the subject matter. It's maybe a more desperate question than I intended for it to be. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you, that you link this question so much to the, to the you know, pandemic or the situation we're in now, because when you were talking, I was thinking that that sort of described my students long before the pandemic. Yeah. And it's like, and when I, I like, you know, I like to think about my students as living in the apocalyptic generation. They, they see the world as ending around them. You know, I see that in the stuff that they write and comments that they make in class. And they, you know, they, it's a really stark contrast to say like the 60s and 70s generation where they, they saw things as bad and that protest was like a way of trying to create change. But when I look at my students, I don't see them wanting to protest. I see them like figuring out how to, have fun before everything burns up and it's too late, you know? Like, like they, they really do experience the world in a more powerless way than I think previous generations do. At least my, that's my the impression I get of my students, that this is a general existential state and not just driven by, but maybe it's exacerbated by the current condition. All the more reason that we try to instill some hope, right? I mean, the opposite of hope is despair. I mean, we, we cannot have a generation of people that are hopelessly despairing and cynical. So all the more reason to connect with them and to try to infuse them with some hope and to try to really kind of mentor them into believing that they do have some freedom to act. And um, it's, it's, the, it's when they get um, bound up in it and you know, tied up in it that they, they feel they can't act, that, that struggle, you know, trouble starts to come. And uh, I, when, I, when I read Rollo May's work, I, I always think like he could have written this today because even though he was writing in 1953, it is so relevant. And there, there always have been looming threats to our existence. Um, you know, one day I was sitting out in my backyard and um, there was a bee, you know, buzzing around and I've never been stung by a bee, believe it or not. But I just thought, you know, here I am by myself in the backyard. That bee could sting me. I could die. That would be the end of it. No one would even know, you know. And those kinds of threats are always with us, no matter, no matter how much we want to try to deny them. And um, all the more reason to help them develop their own power and their own uh, observance of their freedom and the choice to act. I, I agree completely with what you're saying. Maybe, maybe this is a challenging question to answer, so I apologize in advance, but I'm curious what you see as 
the opportunities in the classroom to do that sort of thing. Because on the one hand, the notion of an inspiring teacher is something that I think most of us have experienced and have some connection to. And at the same time, I, I do find that for many of my students and for me, when I've gone to classes, I'm not expecting a whole lot out of that professor. You know, I'm here to get through this class. And so, you know, if they're going to ask me to stand on my desk and say carpe diem, that's not what I signed up for. You know, so, so how do we find within kind of the boundaries of the relationship that we do have, how do we find those opportunities to inspire toward embracing freedom the way that you're talking about? Well, I personally just insert it whenever I can. Uh, I think it depends upon the size of the classroom, but also the, t the content that you're teaching. I'm, I teach clinically oriented classes because I'm clinically trained. Um, but I mean, I kind of would like to throw that question back to you and ask you what comes to your mind when you think about that. Well, you know, I, I think I, I guess similar to what you're saying, I do recognize moments organically along the way where I feel like I'm talking about something that matters to my students and that we can have a connection about it in ways that are personally meaningful. I don't know that I've ever done that deliberately. Yeah, and I have a certain measure of trust that that can unfold. Um, maybe there's not a deliberate way to go about that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, especially, you know, if I'm teaching research methods, if I'm talking about statistics and that sort of thing, this sort of, this doesn't come up. But when we talk about how the um, pressures to publish and the pressures to um, misrepresent research and this sort of thing can impact the way that we do statistics, you know, then the students come alive for something. You know, it's a much more human question. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that I feel like it, it does happen, but I I have a harder time planning for it other than looking for where those more human um, concerns within what I'm teaching. Well, I mean, yeah, and one of the things that I I talk about um, at every opportunity I can create is courage, you know, just a the virtue and value of courage in that it really, um, for example, in my syllabus, I if students ha have missed a test or they want some exception or something like that, I ask them to come and see me personally because I think that that's something that should be requested face to face. Yet I know it takes courage for a student to step inside my class, my office, you know? And so I talk about that and use the word courage quite a bit and I think it's infused in the language, it's infused in my attitude, and I would hope it's infused in kind of the essence of who I am. But I, for a long time, I struggled with, you know, what, who do I serve? Uh, and I answered that question by saying, I serve their learning. I serve learning. That is who I am a servant to. And so any decisions that I make are in basically in related to the in the service of learning and so i kind of have those exploration of values that kind of guide me in, at multiple levels in the syllabus in the topic selection in my lecture preparation in the activities we do at you know at multiple levels so it's hard to just say that it's one single thing it's 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 this whole 
uh, working through the process that's affected, you know, um, my teaching at multiple levels. Yeah. I wonder if we could, if we could maybe wrap up with one more uh, question and, and maybe this question's for the group, but um, I, I kind of don't want to let this go because uh, I think just, just where I feel like I'm at right now with my students, um, you know, where my, where my own children are at really with this moment in time, I, I wonder if, if um, we could each maybe try and share one thing that we can do right now to better connect with our students um, when we can't see them face to face. Are you going to go first, Joe? I don't know. <laughs> I was actually thinking it's interesting because I was thinking during this conversation about a student. Yeah, I will go first. I, I have a student who, um, who I advise and who is really, who's reached out to me at one point a couple weeks ago and, and asked, or just told me that she was having a hard time being motivated. And it didn't surprise me, you know, Josh, she was the sort of person who beforehand was already experiencing enough anxiety that, that something like this would, would have easily uh, pushed her over the edge. Um, and I, I have encouraged her a couple times to uh, set up a virtual office hour with me so we could talk about it. And she hasn't. And during this conversation, I thought, I don't know why I haven't just set it up myself and sent her the invitation. Do that work for her and then see if she shows up. And if she shows up, then we can have that conversation. And, and in that sense, I, I, don't, I don't require her to, to, um, to do the work of clicking on a link and signing up for, for an appointment. I do, I, I do that for her. And um, of course, in that situation, I think she'd respond to it. We have that kind of a relationship. I don't know if every student would, but so that's something I've been thinking about anyway. Um, I, I guess for me, I, I may not, I may not have exactly the type of example that you're talking about just because I'm between semesters right now. Uh, so I've actually been experiencing a lot of anxiety about this semester that's going to start for me on Monday, where I don't know my students yet. Um, you know, I, I don't yet have the start of that relationship other than the plans that I'm making. And so to some degree, I'm trying to project some of my own experience as a single dad with kids at home, trying to um, handle their homeschooling, uh, uh, you know, challenges that are common to a lot of people dealing with social distancing and that sort of thing, as well as other challenges that I'm not experiencing that I imagine my students could be experiencing and just try to anticipate, you know, what would I want out of this class that would be meaningful, that would, you know, help me to learn what I need to learn, but that also wouldn't make my life harder in ways that it doesn't need to be where so many other things already are hard. I, I guess what this conversation is leading me to as I'm considering all of those things is, um, you know, as Michelle's talked about kind of having a certain kind of attitude or a, a, a way of being suffuse what you're doing, I guess I'd really like to attend to how much I am inviting my students to an experience 
and clearing the path as much as I can to the experience, recognizing that they may or may not take me up on that invitation. What about you, Josh? You know, it's funny because uh, I think that the social distancing stuff has probably changed my work experience less than most people's because, you know, my campus is, is so far away from my house that I work from home the majority of the time anyway. So my work habits and, and I, I did a lot of like video conferencing with students already. So that was already like a part of my experience. And so this was much less of a shift for me. But one thing that I, that, that I did kind of at the beginning when this all happened, I, you know, I, I noticed that there were like these, that this could be an opportunity in some ways. This, the fact that everyone else was now where I was used to being, which is behind a camera. Um, I, I, I found that I had an opportunity now, it was just more organic to, to start conversations that never had happened because not everyone was used to this dynamic. So I had, a, you know, I, I basically just reached out to students that I was mentoring or to other colleagues or whatever and just said, you know, let's, we've been meaning to talk for like six years. Let's talk now, but let's just do it through Zoom or whatever. You know? And it actually, in a weird way, I feel like I've been more in contact with people since the social distancing started than I was before because now everyone was more prepared to interact with me in a way that was possible because of my distance from everyone. So, so I guess I would say that taking the opportunities that this provides was a way of, you know, like I like what Michelle kept saying about, you know, everybody has opportunities to act. I think those opportunities are not always the ones you want or not are always the best ones, but finding where those opportunities are, I think you know, it can be powerful in this situation. I think is one where we can find opportunities that we maybe didn't see to, to create community closely. Yeah, Michelle, you get the last word. All right, well, I have a, a long story. That's not surprising to you. No, it's a short story. Uh, there was one a student in my meditation class and I was trying to help her develop uh, self-compassion. And so I consulted with my meditation teacher and asked him, you know, what do I say? What do I do? How can I help her? develop this self-compassion and he would give me answers that were really kind of very satisfying and and then one day it occurred to me um all that i want for her be that right so uh, i want her to be uh, kind to herself so be kind to her i want her to be patient with herself be patient with her you know i want um all of those i want her to be uh, experiencing more compassion for herself so so be compassionate to her and with her. And so, you know, all that you want to see be that basically is kind of my um, tenet for this experience. And um, I have typed so many times, you know, do the best you can as you can, uh, because I think that's all we can ever expect of anybody and connect with that feeling of, um, well, there's times in my life where I didn't feel like I could pull my act together and get what needed to be done, done. And I felt unmotivated and I felt like giving up and, you know, empathically connect with that experience. And then there's no, there's no, um, it's not missed on me that, in, that encouragement comes from courage, the word courage, right? So we're in that moment giving them encouragement, but we're giving them courage. You know, we're, we're doing it indirectly. 
And so I think everybody could use with a little bit of um, infusion of encouragement and hope and optimism and compassion. And so that's what I continue to do, even though I'm typing the words in many, uh, much of the time, but I constantly kind of keep coming back to that frame of reference. Thank you, Michelle. It's been a delight to have you here uh, as our guest today, and, and we appreciate the time you've given. I uh, kind of wish we could continue the conversation, but uh, I think our time is up. So uh, we'll say goodbye uh, until next time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.